Well, good morning again, friends and church family. This morning we'll be going through, as we've already noted, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And I want to talk about something uh, that I'm sure you either find strange or fascinating or both. And that is bodybuilding. I don't know, maybe you're all in on bodybuilding. Maybe you're like, what, where are we going here? I want to talk about bodybuilding. I find it both strange and fascinating. It's amazing how God has created our bodies to adapt and change. And that from different uh, stimuli and different stresses on our body, our body reacts. And so if we lift something that's way too heavy for our body, our body says, "Woo, I didn't like that. I'm going to try to change so that, you know, I can do that a little easier next time. And you repeat that thousands of times over, and you get bigger and you get stronger. Bodybuilding is fascinating to me for so many reasons. Even that act of, of that stress in that, that you're like micro-tearing the muscles, and then the muscles say, wait, we need to kind of bulk up here. And you tear them a little more, and then they bulk up, and then they tear a little more, and they got to bulk up, and eventually you become a, a monster uh, now. I am not a bodybuilder myself, but I find it really interesting. And it's kind of like the opposite of sculpting, that a sculptor would take a big block of marble and chip away until they get to the sculpture that they're after. Bodybuilding is kind of the opposite. You start with, you know, little old me, and then you you build on it, and you become, become big and strong, and you're your own kind of sculpture. Now, many of us are familiar, too, with the other kind of bodybuilding. I'm talking about healthy bodybuilding. You know, if we just have a diet exclusively of donuts, our bodies grow, too, just not in the same way. What I want to talk about this morning is healthy bodybuilding. Now, we know through a lot of Scripture, we see this metaphor of the church being a body. The church is a body. It's a metaphor that's used a lot. And so what I want to consider this morning is how we build a healthy church body how we can be body builders as christians right minus the veins and spray tan but how we can be body builders as a church how do we build up the body of christ and we're going to see this consistent through all 16 verses that it's unity that builds up the body of christ and so our big idea this morning is you guessed it unity builds up the church Unity builds up the church. And so as we work through these 16 verses, even though it's only 16 verses, there is a lot going on. And so there is going to be a lot more than we can even cover this morning. And so I encourage you from this kind of bird's eye view to spend some time this afternoon or uh, later today or throughout this week uh, in your personal quiet time, in your family worship, around the dinner table, in your community groups, in your discipling relationships to wrestle with Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. And I want to tell you, this is a great Sunday for you to be here. If you are a Christian, this is what we're talking about. How do we build up the body? It's critical to our calling. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you're encouraged by what the church is and what the church can be. You may be coming in here this morning with all sorts of distorted ideas of the church the, what this body is all about, characters about who we are and what we do and what we believe. I pray that you come out encouraged at a clear picture of what the Bible teaches about healthy bodybuilding, what the body of Christ is really about. We're going to consider 
our big idea, how unity builds up the church in three areas, that we are to walk in unity, that we are to work for unity, and we are to grow in unity. Walk in unity, work for unity, and grow in unity. Would you listen to God's word as I read it? Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. And so our first point we want to look at is walking in unity, to walk in unity. This is how we, uh, the first step in our church body building regime, walking in unity. It's good. It's not running. We're walking in unity. Paul starts with a therefore. I therefore. Remember, we've talked about this lots of times. When we see a therefore, we need to ask, what is it there for? And we see he's referring back to all that has come before, all that has come through the first three chapters of Ephesians, which is just doctrine and beauty and good news. Looking all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1, we see the incredible statement that if we are in Christ, we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That we have been predestined for adoption as God's children. That we can find salvation. Chapter 1, verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. This is the good news of the gospel. 
This is what Paul is referencing. In Christ, he says it almost every verse. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, we are adopted. We have salvation. We have redemption. We've been chosen. We have reconciliation. We have been reconciled with God. We considered that weeks ago. That we have peace with God. And that's great news. That we were dead in our sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's good news. We can have peace with God. But we see that it doesn't stop there. Our peace with God means that we can have peace with one another. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Paul's talking about here is it's not just Jews, God's chosen people uh, throughout history. It wasn't that only they could find salvation, but all people, Jews and Gentiles, those who were far off, could know peace with God and therefore peace with one another. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of the gospel that we've been brought near together. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, this mystery is that the Gentiles those who are not Jewish, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the good news of Jesus Christ, we are now members of the same body. That's a radical truth. And Paul tells us why. He says in verse 10 of chapter 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is good news. And this is what Paul is referring to. He's saying, because of all that's come before, therefore, and so we've got this wide view of the purpose of the church, what we're all about, what, man, to display God's wisdom to the world. And then whoosh, it all narrows in right here in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So it's all very big, big wide-angle lens, and all of a sudden, boom, we zoom right in. And what is this calling, and how are we to live? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Reminds us, too, of when we look back to chapter 2, right after the description of the amazing good news that we were dead and made alive in Christ, and that we were saved by grace alone, not by our works, so that we can't boast, but we are saved for good works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And this is what Paul reminds them of here. To walk in a manner that's worthy of this calling. And he's modeling it. He's a prisoner. He's writing from prison. And so he's modeling it for them. His walk matches his talk. He's saying, I believe this enough that I'm in prison for you. And he's not bragging about it. But just in that statement, we see that that's true. Man, he has come up against the cost of discipleship, and he's pushed right on through. Saying, from prison, I'm urging you to walk in this way. Just like we can look at brothers like Nadala, right, who has suffered for the name of Christ. Multiple attempts on his life, and he's still dealing with the repercussions. So he could come and say, I urge you, 
saints at HGC walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And it holds some weight. It's cost him something. And so Paul is modeling it. His walk is costing him, his, himself something. And he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Again, the Christians in Asia Minor. But he's writing to Christians. This is the calling. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have a calling. You don't have to wait until you're called to vocational ministry or called overseas to the mission field. If you are a Christian, you are called. And your walk should match your calling. We see in verse 2, what does that walk look like? To walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You may be here this morning as a Christian and you've heard this argument or maybe you thought this before you came to Christ or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you think, right on, Aaron, that sounds cool. You know, walk in a manner worthy of being a Christian. It's humble and gentle and patient. That sounds just real peachy. But look throughout history. Christians haven't lived this way. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Outspoken atheists like Ricky Gervais would say, imagine how good the world would be if all Christians lived like Jesus. Now he's saying it mocking Christianity. Right? Or Mahatma Gandhi says, I, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. And I think we can agree that we too often miss the mark. And throughout history, Christians have failed at this too often. But I want to be clear that our world is no different. You know, we, could, you, we can throw mud as much as we want at, you know, the church throughout history, but, but we're not getting a different message from our world, at least not in action. Even in the context of this passage, Greek society looked really low on humility. They prized pride. There's a few times that in Greek literature they talk about humility, but it's always in a condescending, mocking way. To be humble was to be weak. You celebrate the proud. I don't think that's that different that from our culture today. It's maybe masked by a masquerade of humility, but we're really all about self-importance, self-exaltation. You do you. You take care of yourself first. We don't live in a humble society. What about gentleness? No, the, the bullies get rewarded. The bullies get a platform. What about patience? We invented microwaves. We're not patient people. But more seriously, we are, our society is not a patient. Everything is about getting it quicker, you know, to your door. You know, by the time you're done clicking, you can still hear the reverberations in the Amazon guys at your door. We're not a patient society. And so we can agree, okay, the church has got this wrong throughout history. Our society is getting this wrong today. What about church leadership? Maybe church leadership, they've got this figured out. Well, too often we get this wrong too. Pride is poison. We want to do big things. We want to be famous and we want to do it fast. Big, famous, fast. This is the temptation in church leadership to build a platform. But we see this is so counter to Scripture. 1 Peter 5 says that pastors and elders are to shepherd the flock of God not for shameful gain, 
not domineering over the flock. 1 Timothy 3 gives the description of qualifications for pastors and elders. And do we see a picture of, oh yeah, you can be, you know, you don't have to be gentle. No, we see gentleness is prized. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. These are, and these are, this is the bottom, this is the base. Not like, oh man, maybe you're just an extra good pastor or elder if you can embody humility or not domineer over people or not be quarrelsome. No, this is the qualifications. This is the bottom line. And so we don't get this right. We're not patient. We want to do things big, famous, and fast. And so we agree, okay, church history, we've messed this up a couple times. Current society, not nailing this, walking in a manner worthy of any calling. Church leadership, too often we see this abused. What about you? What about your own heart? Are you humble? Or do you lead with every decision and every conversation with it's about me? It should give us pause when we start our conversations always. Will I feel, you know, you might feel right. That might be a, that might be a great follow-up, what's going to come after that. But we should be careful because we live in a society and our own hearts are twisted enough that it's all about us. Will I feel Now, the way we work against this isn't just shaming yourself and thinking less of yourself. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He just says, don't think less of yourself, just think of yourself less. We need to think about others. This is what Paul is talking about. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility. We're, we're walking towards unity here. That's the goal in our bodybuilding regime. And how we do that is thinking of others, walking in humility. What about gentleness? When you hear gentleness, do you think of weakness? Man, you can be strong as an ox, but be gentle. Gentleness is strength under control. But we don't prize that. We don't celebrate that. We might say, and I bet we're all like, yeah, right, that sounds good. But we live different than that, you know? The bullies get the promotions, the arrogant, the violent. And too often, that's where our heart goes. We're not gentle. And how about patience, right? Do we pray for patience and get upset with God that the answer doesn't come quick enough? We need to walk in a manner worthy of what it means to be a Christian. That's our calling. To be a Christian is to be, by definition, a Christ follower. So we need to follow Christ. We just sang about Jesus, strong and kind. That's a, that's a crazy statement, to be strong and kind. What a beautiful picture. But that's perfectly embodied in Christ. That when we were lost, he would come to us. As we sang about in the first, I think it was the first song, look to Christ who condescended came down to our level, humbled himself. That's a picture of Christ. He is patient, perfectly patient with us as we stumble over and over and over and over and over again. He is perfectly gentle and lowly. He's humble. When we're weary and heavy laden, he says, come to me. I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. 
And so if we follow Christ, this is our calling, to grow to be more like Christ. And it's through walking in this way, walking towards this unity with humility and gentleness, with patience, that we can bear with one another in love. I think the 2021 way of saying bear with one another is put up with one another. We can put up with one another. And how do we do this? In love. It has to be motivated by love. If it's motivated by anything else, we can have great head knowledge, we can have a great theology of these things, but if our instinct isn't to actually walk in this way, it's not affecting our hearts. We see some of Jesus, well, pretty much all of Jesus' followers, they, they desert him, right? But we look at James and John, the sons of thunder, and when they are going to, they have great theology. They're spending time with Jesus. They're, they're buddies. They're in the inner circle of the inner circle. And when the Samaritans say, hey, you guys can't come to town, James and John are like, oh, I know what we should do. We should call down thunder from, uh, fire from heaven. And Jesus is like, whoa, pump the brakes, guys. But they have great theology. They, they know these truths, but their hearts are not changed. Their hearts are not affected. So to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called is to have affected hearts. That we can bear with one another, that we can put up with one another in love. We need to be motivated by love. This is why Christ is the perfect example of being strong and kind, of being gentle and lowly at heart, because he loved us. And it's important to see, too, this, this, this whole building argument that we need to walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. The goal of this is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We see that this unity is what Christ created in his death, this new covenant that the, t the temple curtain was torn, that we all could have access to this good news. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter your race, your status, your anything. We have open access to peace with God. And I love that this is important. We do not create this unity. We maintain this unity in the body of Christ. Christ has already created it. We don't have to think, man, I want to be more humble, but I, I don't know if I can create this supernatural. Well, you can't. But Christ has created it, and we are to maintain it by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. This is how we walk in unity. This is the first step in our bodybuilding regime. This is how we build up the body of Christ. Now, Paul goes on. It's not just unity at all costs. It's unity centered on truth. You might have noticed this statement, this first century creed sort of thing, not the band, first century creed that he goes through, this sequence of truths, seven ones that he lists out, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Now there's a lot going on here, but just to cruise through it quick, this is important because what, what Paul's saying, this unity that they are to maintain, it centers around this truth. We are united because of the gospel. We are not united because of affinity. We are not united because of preference. Okay? We are not united even by our own volition. We are united because of the gospel. What is this? Well, it's one body. There's no subcategories. We've talked about this in God's kingdom. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says that Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we have one 
body, one spirit. Christians share the same spirit. Same thing in Ephesians 2, verses 18, a couple verses later. It says, for through him, through Christ, we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. We have one body. We have one spirit. We also have one hope. We were hopeless. Same thing. Chapter 2, verses 12, near the end. It says, having no hope without God in the world. But now we have hope in Christ. This is our one hope. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. Jesus is Lord. Verse 19 of chapter 2. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is Lord. That's a bold claim. That's a bold claim now, but that's a bold claim in the first century. To say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. That's something you could lose your head over. They have one Lord. We have one Lord. One faith. These are these shared truths that they're talking about. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Christians share the common experience of being baptized into Christ. We are united to him and to his people. And our baptism in water pictures this reality. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. We are God's adopted children, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved because of God's rich mercy. Maybe you're here this morning... And you hear these things, and maybe you've heard it before, maybe you've never heard it before, but when I'm talking about one hope, maybe you're saying, I don't have a hope. Or I'm putting my hope in things that just can't hold this kind of weight. Well, this is the good news. This is the, the gospel, literally means good news. This is the good news that we center on. It motivates us and unites us in all that we do. And this is the good news that Paul proclaims. And this is the good news, the same good news that's good news for you this morning. That we were dead in our sin. Because of our sin, we separated ourselves from God. But God, being rich in mercy, he sent his son into the world to live a perfect life. That Jesus would live a sinless life, yet die the death that you and I deserve. That's the penalty for our rebellion. That's the penalty for our, for our sin. But Jesus would live the perfect life, yet die in our place. He would sub out with us. So that when God looks at us, he would see Christ in his righteousness. And when Christ died, when he looked at Christ, he saw us in our sin. But Christ defeated death. He rose on the third day demonstrating that God's wrath had been satisfied. And this is the good news for us today, friends. That by repenting of our sin, turning from our sin, and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, we could know peace with God. We could be made right with God. We could be called his son or daughter. This is our hope in life and in death. If you don't know this hope, we would love to talk to you more about it. Come talk to me. Talk to someone near you. Talk to whoever invited you. This is the good news. This is how we can be united. How people from every nation and language and tribe and tongue can come together and center on this truth. 
This is how we walk in unity. Because we can have peace with God and peace with one another. We'd love to share more about this hope with you. And today could be that day where you can find that hope. And so Christian, it's this hope, this gospel message, this good news that we are united in. Again, not unity at any cost, unity in the truth. And it, I want to be clear too, this unity also doesn't mean uniformity. Our unity is significant because of our diversity. And so we must walk in unity, but also our second point, we must work for unity. Work for unity. Back to Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now the grace that he references in verse 7 isn't saving grace, but serving grace. This is how Paul describes his own ministry. In chapter 3, multiple times, he says that it's a gift of God's grace. That that is his calling. He has been given a gift to serve the Lord in this way, to live up to this calling. And so with our calling as Christians comes a commission, and with our commissioning comes gifting. And then Paul quotes, therefore it says, he quotes from Psalm 68, a, victorious, a psalm about a victorious king returning from battle. And Paul applies it to the victorious Christ. He says that Christ has ascended on high. He shares the spoils with his people, with the church. And he applies this, as we see. He, he goes on, you see the parentheses, he kind of expands on a little bit. And he applies this to the body of Christ, to both leaders and members. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. As we see application here, his gifts to the church Gifts are people, gifted people, empowered by his spirit, leaders to equip, members to do. And he gives varying gifts for different purposes. This diversity of gifts, this unity in diversity is a beautiful thing. And it's a good thing, practically. You think of a sports team, whatever sport you play, if you have a whole hockey team of goalies, you know, you might be strong in one area, but you're not necessarily going to win a lot of games. Same if you play baseball and you have a whole team full of pitchers. Man, you've got a great bullpen, but you don't have anyone that can bat. This is the, the unity and diversity that Christ generously gives to the church. Unity and diversity racially, yes. And unity and diversity in gifts, yes. And so just to expand on what he's talking about here, he gives a list of leaders and then talks about their function. And so just quickly to go through, first he talks about apostles. An apostle, it means sent ones. The apostles are sent ones. 
And so in one sense, every Christian today is a sent one. We have received this calling. We've received the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. We are all sent ones. But the office of an apostle was a foundational, one-time role. You only lay a foundation once. And so in one sense, we can use the word apostolic in, in that kind of applicational sense for us today, but, but we can't say that we are apostles anymore. That was a one-time thing. And so some people may use the language of apostolic gifting. Uh, again, you don't have to just turn your ears off and say heresy or anything, but uh, I think it is unhelpful sometimes to use those words because uh, the office of an apostle, again, it was foundational, someone specifically appointed by Jesus for that specific work in the time of the early church. We also see prophets in a similar way. Today we can describe someone as having prophetic gifts, right? good ability to interpret and apply and explain God's word. But in the context here, we're seeing it foundational, as he mentions in chapter 2, the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, this one-time thing. Like the Old Testament prophets, they spoke for the Lord. This is God's direct revelation. And so like apostles, also a foundational role. But then Paul pivots from foundational to ongoing. He mentions evangelists. Now we see evangelism. It's, that's a common expression to evangelize throughout the Bible. It's a call for all Christians to share the hope that we have. This specific term of, of calling someone an evangelist only happens three times in Scripture. Once here, once talking about Timothy, and once talking about Philip, the evangelist. And we see just from that description that we are all called to evangelize. But there are some people who are specifically and specially gifted to evangelize in this supernatural way. Now, don't hear me wrong. That does not mean that you, oh, boom, I guess I'm not, whew, I have not been gifted as an evangelist, therefore I will not evangelize. No, that's, that's not even, we can't put that together. And I lived too long in my life thinking that. Oh man, I'm not gifted in this way, that's not, I'll leave that for the evangelist. We are all called to share the hope that we have. And then we see shepherds and teachers. Now this is hotly debated. Are we talking about uh, shepherds, or your translation might say pastors and teachers as two separate roles, or is it one, shepherds, teachers, or pastor, teachers? There's only one article in the Greek, which leads many to say, well, no, hey, we had this wrong for a long time. It's actually only one role. But the reason why it's so hotly debated is a lot of times people see this list, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, A-P-E-S-T, sometimes we'll say apest, uh, as this paradigm for church planting. That, oh, you know, if you want to plant a church or you want to have a successful ministry, you need to have one of each of the apest gifts. Now, this isn't what Paul's describing here. Because we see that some of these are foundational. We see some of these are ongoing. But even if it wasn't, if we were just talking about apostolic gifting, sent ones, or uh, prophetic gifts to apply scripture, we don't see every office mentioned. We don't see deacons here. So I don't think we, we just have like all of a sudden this hierarchy of church leadership that's laid out. And it's not a pattern that we see elsewhere in scripture. They don't wait until they have this apest formula to plant a church. No, they share the gospel. Christians start congregating, boom, you're a church. Then Paul says, all right, appoint some elders. Boom, there, now you have some leadership. Hey, have some deacons to, to serve the church and lead in those practical areas. Okay, boom, there. That's more of the pattern we see. And so we, I don't 
think we have to wrestle too much with this teachers versus shepherds or pastors thing because we see so much overlap in these roles. Paul is all of them. So it's not like they're, they have to be specific offices. And if we're not seeing them as this paradigm, it doesn't really matter. As we consider it anyways, we do see that pastor, shepherd, elder, it's all same word used, these terms used interchangeably through the New Testament. And the one qualification that is not a character qualification, that's a skill qualification, is ability to teach. So all pastors must teach. All pastors must be teachers. But then we also see scripturally that there are some who teach that are not necessarily pastors. Aquila and Priscilla teach. And so not all teachers are pastors, but all pastors are teachers. And so you might feel like, whoa, now we're in a bit of a fog here, and that's okay. The point I'm making is that we don't have to wrestle with this endlessly, that this isn't a paradigm of this five-fold ministry of the local church. What's the point of this? That throughout history, God has in different ways, but always, given the church those who are particularly gifted to proclaim his word. And why? Is it to do the work, to do the heavy lifting of the ministry? No, it says not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Church leaders' primary role is to prepare, train, deliver, and equip God's people for the work. We get this wrong too often. Now, I've spent more time on that side of the pulpit than this side of the pulpit, so I know that feeling. It's, it's easy to say, you know, to professionalize clergy or to say, okay, I have my role, but then, you know, the ones that we're paying, are, they're going to do this kind of stuff, or we would expect that. Uh, I do think Scripture sets a paradigm for, you know, church leadership, and, you know, for some people set aside specifically to, to preach, and that Scripture does say, hey, if you can, support these people financially so that they can devote themselves fully to the work. But what we also see scripturally is that the main purpose of that is not to just do the work. It's to equip the saints to do the work, equip all Christians to do the work. We need to have an every member ministry. We all work. That's just the way it works. This is how we build up the body. We put the work in. We must commit. We must contribute. To show up and purely consume church, it stunts your own growth, and it works against this bodybuilding that happens in the church. I have really flat feet. And when I run and I don't have my orthotics or I haven't run in a while, my flat feet cause all sorts of problems, but never to my feet. They affect, it affects everything else. My ankles hurt, my knees hurt, my hips hurt, my back hurts. And so my little hobbit feet hopping down the road Everything else gets affected other than my feet. And so to show up and consume church is not only stunting our own growth, but it stunts the body. It affects everything in the church. And so I want to ask you, where has God placed you? Whether you're the perfect person for the work or not, what needs to be done? How can you build up the body today? If you don't see what needs to be done, ask what needs to be done. And you know what? If it lines up great with how God has gifted, then hey, praise the Lord. But sometimes we just got to do the work. We have to walk in unity and we have to work for unity. To be a member of the body is to contribute. 
We contribute our time. We contribute our money. We contribute our energy. This is how we walk in unity. This is how we work for unity. And we see that the purpose is the same as the prescription. Our third point this morning, to grow in unity. Picking up again in verse 12. Uh, go to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the way it works. The goal is to grow together in unity and to grow in Christ-likeness. Paul has already prayed this for the Ephesians multiple times in chapter 1 and chapter 3, that they would grow in the knowledge and understanding of Christ and his love. And so as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as we put the work in, we attain and maintain unity and we grow in maturity. To be a growing Christian should be normal. To be a growing body should be normal. To be stalled out and plateaued should be the exception or even an oxymoron. He says we are no longer children. That's the goal. And this isn't a dig at kids. right? We see other times where Jesus says, come to me like a child, open-handed, with nothing. There's not just a knock at being a kid. But if our goal of Christian maturity is like a child, to be, you know, by God's design, malleable, that's not where we want to be. He uses strong language, like a little boat in big water being tossed around. That's a terrifying prospect, right? Or to be carried away by every wind of doctrine. This reminds us back where we were in the summer with Psalm chapter 1, that we can be a tree planted by streams of water with deep roots, or it can be like chaff that's just blown away in the slightest breeze. And how true is this? We see that if we don't have those deep roots, all, all of a sudden we have a doubt or a fear. Or we hear something and whew, we get blown away. And so our goal and the prescription is to grow in maturity. That's how we build up the body. We grow in unity. We walk in unity. We work for unity. And we are to grow in unity. How? Well, we see the passage is bookended by love. At the beginning, we need to bear with one another in love or put up with one another in love, motivating our humility, our gentleness, and our patience. And at the end here, this is what we see. We need to speak the truth in love, that the body builds itself up in love. I love this expression, truth in love, speaking the truth in love. The word here for truth is a verb. It's an action word. Uh, the most literal translation would be truthing. Not a word, but truthing in love. That's, that's what should characterize the body of Christ. Truthing. That's we just truth in love. But man, we are bad at that. I sound bad at that. I'm good at one or the other. You know, truth at all costs, void of love, or love at all costs, void of truth. And we see this in our society. Lean heavy on the truth, light on the love, right? Or vice versa in our culture. All about love, 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 but no truth. 
We're called to a higher calling, to walk, to work, and to grow into this calling, to speak the truth in love, to be truthing in love. And we see that that's, that's the way Jesus, strong and kind, works. That's truth in love. So we are to grow. And, and that's the contrast to the immaturity here. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Christ, who is the head. And that's how we build up the church again in love, when we're working properly together. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Man, this is the best kind of bodybuilding, and this is what we're called to as Christians. This is what the church should be all about. Paul Tripp writes this, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. This is our call, to build up the body of Christ. And that's an intimidating call. That's a big ask. Am I right? But God doesn't call us to create this unity. He asks us to maintain this unity. He doesn't call us to do everything. He's given us diverse gifts. And he doesn't call us to even do anything on our own. He's given us his very spirit. So let's walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's work as the Lord enables us. And let's grow to be more like Christ, our Savior. Our Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior who is gentle and lowly in heart. Our Savior who patiently waits for us as we constantly roam. Our Savior who created unity, the unity that we get to enjoy and maintain. Our Savior who didn't carry a pillow but a cross. Our Savior who bore the weight of our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our Savior who defeated death, satisfying God's just wrath. Our Savior who has all authority on heaven and on earth. Our Savior who calls us friends. Our Savior who will never cast us out. Our Savior who promises to be with us to the end of the age. Our Savior who by his grace makes this all possible, and our Savior who will build his church, and we get to be a part of it. This is our Savior. This is our King. King Jesus, let's pray. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. The fact that you have bought us through the gift of your Son, that you have redeemed us, that we can know peace with you and peace with one another. God, by your help, would we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've called us to? Would we work for unity, work towards unity in the diverse ways that you've gifted us to build up your church? And would we grow individually and corporately, that we would grow in maturity to be more like your son, that by beholding Christ, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another? Lord, we can only do this by your help.
would you help us? And would you be glorified as we build up this body in love, perfect love that you showed us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.